Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos Debrief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcus Melissas. I am here with Kerry Eleveld, and today we are going to be joined by Phillips O'Brien. We're going to be talking about Ukraine. We're going to be talking about how weird the partisan dynamics have become in this war with, you know, Democrats and liberals being very strong pro-Ukraine, pro-Pentagon spending and, and arms shipments, and how the American right, the conservative MAGA movement has become isolationist, non-interventionist. And uh, so I couldn't think of anybody better to talk about this than Phillips O'Brien. He is a professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Scotland, right? Yeah. And he is the author of How the West, How the War Was Won, which was uh, about World War II. And Second Most Powerful Man in the World, which was about FDR's chief of staff during World War II. He knows his American war history. He, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Phillips P. O'Brien. And he also, you can find him on Substack at philipspobrien.substack.com. So Phillips, welcome. Thank you for joining us all the way from Scotland. Thank you, Marcus. So I'm going to just lay a little foundation so people know uh, know where I'm coming from. Uh, Daily Coast was founded in 2002 in the run-up to the war in Iraq, and it really took off because it was a platform for anti-war activism during that during that era. And it was it was tough to be a liberal and an opponent of that war. You were accused of being un-American, unpatriotic. It was a very sort of McCarthyist time where where there was a lot of uh, tamping down of, of anti-war mm -hmm. sentiment. And I kind of got away with it because I was a veteran. I served in the U.S. Army for several years. I was uh, MLRS fire direction, MLRS rocket art artillery. Now everybody mm -hmm. who follows the war in Ukraine knows all about it because it's been mm -hmm. one of the big game changers. But that's what I did when I was in the Army. And so it was hard. People still try to accuse me of being an American, but it was a lot harder since I was a veteran. And there, was, there are not a lot of veterans in progressive politics at mm -hmm. the time. Uh, and certainly not in media. So it was a sort of a niche. And so we built a site on anti-imperialism, anti-war, uh, anti-big bloated Pentagon budget. So now fast forward exactly 20 years later, almost, uh, you know, almost to the mm -hmm. month, 20 years later. And Daily Coast is now a hotbed of pro-Ukrainian activism. Our Ukrainian coverage is some of our most popular and most read content on the site. People are cheering things like M1 Abrams to Ukraine and they're begging for F-16s and, and oh, they know they're HIMARS and, and MLRS uh, stats now. So it, it's become a weird sort of twist. And then you have, of course, you have the Republican Party that used to be anti-Soviet, anti-Russia. And while those elements still exist in the modern Republican Party, a big subset of it, the Trump faction of the Republican Party is actually pro-Putin, pro-Russia. Oh, yeah. So... So, Phil, I thought you, with your historical perspective and your study of, of war and uh, World War II and, uh, and your, your incredible coverage of the Ukraine war today, what do you make of that? Uh, there's so much to unpack there, Marcos. And on the one hand, in many ways, we'd say you know, the period where we thought of as the right being pro-war and the left being automatically anti-war, that's only actually a very short part of American history anyway. You might say that starts in the Vietnam, and you know, and 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 goes uh, until recently. In in the past, the Democrats under Roosevelt would have been far more internationalist, interventionist. One would have said than than the Republicans. And at different times in American history, the sort of different parties have have taken stances. I think what we've seen here 
and I know some people don't like this analogy, is a bit of the horseshoe phenomenon. That the farther left, farther right you've gone, the more pro-Putin, pro-Kremlin you've been. And I don't know quite why they've gone that. I mean, it, it seems to me really quite weird that they've become so pro-Putin. But then as you move away from that, more towards sort of like the, the, the liberal left, um, you have those who actually say this is a war that is worth fighting. Now, why I think this war in particular, when you compare it to earlier, say Vietnam, is one, the Americans aren't doing the fighting. I think that makes a big difference. Yep, it helps. The Ukrainians <laughs> are doing this. So you know, this is not the United States going into Iraq to try and remake Iraq or going into Afghanistan to try and remake Afghanistan. This is the Ukrainians standing up for themselves and just saying, help us. And I think that that fundamentally and morally really changes the equation in the way that we view the war, because you know, there are no American troops on the ground there. There are not Americans going in there to try and sort this out. This is, we can see these are the Ukrainians fighting valiantly to save themselves. I mean, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic. I actually think this is, I hope, the future of American warfare. You know, the future of American intervention is not to be interventionist like it has been for a long time. It's you only intervene if people are willing to fight for themselves. And I think right. that's, that's a key distinction. I, I just want to say, I think the difference between us going in and this being, uh, you, you know, Ukrainian self-determination, it's a lot easier to line up morally and ethically behind self-determination of a nation like Ukraine, particularly against an aggressor like like Russia. Absolutely. I mean, this is an anti-imperial war. Ukraine is being invaded. There is arguably a form of genocide that is trying to be attempted against the Ukrainian people. And the Ukrainians simply want to have their country, which is internationally recognized. You know, they're not asking for anyone else's territory. They're just asking for their land, which according to the UN, this is the land of Ukraine. And so it's the opposite, you might say, of the way we've come to look at as imperial um, occupations or imperial forces. This is anti-imperial. So the United States is fighting an anti-imperial war at this time. And I think that has percolated down to the political debate on quite a profound level that people say this is a war I can I can support because it isn't one. Um, where the United States is trying to rule the world. It's actually one where the U Ukrainians are trying to stand up for themselves. So that moral equation is is brain dead simple. And, and I, it just boggles me that anybody would, would, would take Russia's side in this. And we can get into the tankies later on and this idea that American imperialism is the root of all global evil. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, this is pretty simple. And yeah, and I agree that that makes the equation for at least the American left a much simpler one. So we were talking right before we came on on the air, we started recording that that maybe there's some parallels to World War II anti-interventionism in the American right at that time. Well, absolutely. I mean, you might say that there's Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump are very similar to Father Coughlin or Charles Lindbergh in the late 1930s or 40s that they use very similar rhetoric, American first. That was the rhetoric that was used in, at the time of the isolation, which, uh, you know, make America great again, this kind of American exceptionalism uh, rhetoric. It's a really odd thing. It's, it's a form of populism. You know, that populists need to have something they need to rail against. They need to find uh, an enemy. Now, what's strange about you know, who it, how they've done it is in both cases, the U.S. government's the enemy. 
The U.S. is the problem. So in the 1930s, it was Roosevelt. You know, Roosevelt was a bad man. He was going to get us into a war. He was a warmonger. And that's very similar to sort of what they're saying about Biden. Biden's a bad guy. You know, Biden's trying to do all this. I mean, you actually be really interesting. You guys would, would probably have a, a window into it being in America. I'm an American, but I'm not there. What I don't understand is, are people like Tucker Carlson doing this completely because they know this is what the Trumpites want? You know, or are they, I mean, do they believe this? Or is this the kind of thing that what they're doing is they go, look, you know, Trump's got this large well of support in the Republican Party and Trump is avowedly pro-Putin. I mean, he's called him a genius. He's very <laughs> close to him. Hey, and is this friend? simply the Carlsonites trying to like, you know, suck up to the Trumpites or? What, what do you think, Carrie? I have well, my theory. I, I, I have a theory too. So yeah. first of all, I, I okay. I'm going to just go out on a limb here, right? So um, so you guys can smack this down and say, no, that's ridiculous. But I, I don't think everybody's interests are the same, right? So Tucker Carlson, who might actually be considering um, running for president. I mean, some people have him you know, in their presidential 2024 view. I think he's just riding the wave. You know, yep. I think he's just he he's just capitalizing on what's there to capitalize on. Um, you know, Donald Trump might be a different story. I mean, you know, I, I still don't think it's unreasonable to think that Putin has something on Trump. There's a lot of cases where I think there was already a MAGA parade happening and Trump just jumped in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is a case where he actually might have had help jumping in front of the MAGA parade on mm-hmm. on being, you know, America first, anti-interventionist, et cetera. You know, Putin's got some, I mean, I, I, I am baffled by, I'm, I'm not baffled as much by a Tucker Carlson or even a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a clear opportunist, right? Yeah. I'm more baffled by some of the other Republicans who have gone along with this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, some sort of semi-mainstream Republicans who, who are like, yeah, I'm just going to go in this direction. That's what I really don't get. And I don't know if Marcos wants to weigh in. It's always fun to remember that the only change that the Trump people asked for in the 2016 Republican platform was focused on punishing Ukraine. So they've been on that Russia train from the very beginning. And I don't know if it was Trump himself, but definitely the people that he surrounded himself with. And it's all these like mafioso mobby uh, you know, unsavory types that that would still lend him money when everybody else credible stopped stopped giving him money. But I think Tucker Carlson obviously he's an opportunist. He wasn't this um, virulently right wing uh, before he got onto Fox News, so he's definitely riding some kind of wave. But that wave is real, and I think it's based on on a the subset of American. Uh, right, that really worships what Putin stands for, right? The racism, the, the, the white ethno-nationalism, the American Taliban sort of way of using religion as a shield to try to justify all sorts of uh, horrible excesses, the demonization of, of LGBTQ uh, community. And, you know, they, they kept making jokes about how the manly Russian army was going to uh, take out the we, the, the, they, them woke army of the West, right? And and so they they really responded, and I think I you know obviously the the Russians learned how to speak MAGA as they sort of put their finger on the scale mm-hmm. in 2016 on the on the ele- both elections, 
And so Putin knows the words to use. And I think he sometimes obviously uses those. He's talked about Russia being canceled. And so he speaks that, that MAGA language and they respond to it. And it might be as simple as Putin wanted Trump to win and that's good enough for them. So that's my theory. They certainly are aware with it. You know, the reaction to the, the midterm elections was quite depressed in Russia, you know, among, among <laughs> the Russian media. So that was they delicious. Certainly are, yeah, they certainly are. Full, I mean, I wonder to what degree it is just simply Trump's hold on a significant part of the Republican Party. And they just seem to go down his rabbit hole um, and, you know, how he's been able to tap that and move it is, is very Father Coughlin-like, perhaps even more powerful than Father Coughlin, because they seem to be sticking with Trump through thick and thin. From my vantage point, it looks like at the United Kingdom, it's reversed, that it's the conservatives that are stalwart supporters of, of Ukraine. And then you have uh, the left, or maybe it's just Jeremy Corbyn, and he sort of skews <laughs> my whole view of what's happening with the, yeah. with the uh, British left. But what's your take from, from you know, home soil for you right now? There's elements of left and right that also back Putin. I mean, you'll have people like you know, the column, what's his name, Hitchens, you know, Christopher Hitchens' uh, brother, Christopher Hitchens. who's who's a real um, hardcore conservative, who's really backing you know, Putin and calling for negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, Nigel Farage, the great Brexiteer, um, and far right, has been backing you know, Putin and been talking about that. Dominic Cummings, the architect of Vote Leave, uh, was is a big backer of, of Putin and has been calling for you know concessions to Russia throughout this entire thing. It might be that that it's a question of who's also in power, and because uh, the conservatives are in power and the conservative government under Johnson decided to back Ukraine, that that's meant that much of the conservatives have you know who who might have gone the other way or have stuck have stuck with the government. Uh, and maybe it also, by the way, that has meant that some people on the far left in America have stuck with yeah. Biden who might not. If it was a Republican president backing, <laughs> yeah, of um, course. backing Ukraine, <laughs> it might have actually been that. So, but if you look at the Labour Party, you know, that outside of the Corbynites, <clears throat> but actually it's been very strong backing of Ukraine. Okay. Um, no. And even, you know, this is an issue, the SNP, which not probably doesn't get a lot of coverage there, Scottish National Party, yep. has been strongly backing Ukraine. And in many ways, they're to the left of the Labour Party in certain ways um, you know, when it comes to nuclear weapons. So, yes, there are the Corbinites that absolutely have gone down that, that way. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very similar to the America, just different because of who is in power, I would say. Um, but the, certainly a lot of the Brexiteers are like the Trumpites, and they have been definitely on the anti-Ukrainian side from the start of this. So the Russians have obviously invested a great deal of effort in, in supporting these sort of pro-Russia, pro-Putin movements, yeah. uh, you know, like Trump and Le Pen in, in mm -hmm. France right. and uh, uh, Linke in, in Germany, the, the left. And the AFD, both, both and left and right in Germany. Yeah. Both left and right. And we keep coming back to that horseshoe, right? I mean, it's, it's code pink and white supremacists all... all mm -hmm holding hands for for putin um do you think they're getting their money's worth you think this is actually working out for putin in the end that's a really great question they were getting their money's worth till the war started <laughs> and then when the war i mean this is one of those things I, I, i've been bad on putin in my analysis i've been pretty also i've been pretty good on the war 
but I've been bad on Putin because he seems to me to be doing so many stupid things and I always <laughs> think he won't continue doing stupid things. But the number one stupid decision he made was to start this war, or start the full scale invasion, because yeah. the war had been going on, as you know. The stupidest thing he had done to start was to start this war in February because then he lost control. The whole thing about a war is once you go, you, you can maintain control if you have a crisis, if you're having threatening, if you're on the border and say, we are going to invade, you can always, you can always control that. You could stop it. You could then negotiate. But once you go to war, you lose that ability because you can't control what's going to happen in a war. The other side has a real chance. They're going to fight back. And that's when Putin really lost his ability to maneuver because he's, he really believed his own BS about how good the Russian army was and how easy it would be to conquer Ukraine. For, but from that point on, I don't think he has gotten his money's worth because basically his army has so badly underperformed that all the Putinites who would have been there to back him, you know, all the, the far right, the, the Trumpites who would have been saying, they seem to be ineffective because the Ukrainians are actually making a mockery of their argument. Go back and watch Tucker Carlson or you know, watch the Brexiteers in fe late February and early March. They'll say, oh, Russia's strong. Russia's going to get its act together. They're going to win this war. We've got to, you know, we've got to force the Ukrainians to back down. That's, that was the regular, we've got to make, you know, we, in many ways, they were, was it the, the comparison to Hungary in 56, basically hand Ukraine mm -hmm. over to uh, Russia. But all of a sudden, when the Russian army begins to falter and the Ukrainians all of a sudden fight really well, then those arguments sort of seem pretty pointless because it's not poor little Ukraine against big, mighty Russia. It's large, incompetent, corrupt Russia with a really problematic military against a committed Ukraine that's going to fight really hard for its existence. And that's when their arguments collapse. And this is, sorry, I don't want to take all the time, but I think one thing that's really interesting about this is it proves one of the important points about how U.S. public opinion reacts to war. There have been a lot of really bad takes in this war. One of the really bad takes early was, oh, the U.S. opinion is going to get bored or they're going to get lack, you know, they're going to they're going to lose interest. Remember that? Or, you know, they're going to move on to, to that and they'll abandon Ukraine. It was not reasonable. It was not an unreasonable because, but there's no evidence for this in U.S. history. U.S. population reacts to war primarily about victory or not. Now, maybe that's a little cynical, but I, what the U.S. population, they will back a war if they think it's winnable. If they don't think it's winnable, they're going to pull the plug. Mm. So what Ukraine did is it showed, it convinced the American people they can win. You know, the, the Ukrainians can, and that all of a sudden destroys the argument of the American people who are going to say, oh, you know, let's just abandon Ukraine. They're not going to win, you know, force them. As soon as the Ukrainians actually started to convince the American people they can win the war, that has cemented American support for it. And it's remained really rock solid uh, beyond the Trumpites and the Republican Party. The only part of the American population that's wavered is an element of the Republican Party, the Trumpite. So I think that's when I would say that's been the, 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 the really key difference is the Ukrainians fought so well, they convinced the American population they could win. And then that has kept the support going. And at that point, it doesn't matter what Putin's spending his money on because his army can't actually change that narrative.
that's sort of a good segue into something I've been wondering about. You said earlier that your your analysis about Putin hasn't been great, but your analysis about the war has been decent. Um, and we're also talking about you know Americans sticking with it because they think Ukraine can win. We, we seem to be entering a sort of critical phase right now. Um, and I haven't been following this nearly as closely, of course, of, as uh, or knowledgeably as Marcos, who's been writing about it, who's a veteran. I'm not a veteran um, who actually has experience in logistics and all that stuff. But I, I do have a sense that we're at a critical period. And I think a lot of people out there do. And, you know, my my really basic uh, analysis is, it seems like there, you know, the conventional wisdom is now that Ukraine might not be able to keep this up forever. But you know, uh, but Putin probably is more than willing to keep feeding Russians and mercenaries into the wood chipper in order to win this in perpetuity. So um, uh, there does seem some urgency in the in the next coming phase of the war. I don't know if it's if that's actually an accurate analysis of next coming phase. But I wish maybe you would you would. Uh, either one or both of you would talk just a little bit about um, what's at stake in, in how things are changing in the, in the, um, the landscape. Marcos, do you want to start with that? And then. (laughs) Uh, Sure. I I, I can start, although Phil is very capable of doing this as well, but uh, Russia, it's funny at the beginning of the war, Russia had a lot of armor. They didn't have enough forces. They, They invaded with a, pittance of troops and they attacked across four major axes in the north and the northeast east and south of the country they were spread incredibly thin and it eventually led them to have to abandon systematically three of those axes and now we're fighting just on the east but what that does mean is that they're all you got you know several hundred thousand potential um russian soldiers uh, crammed into a smaller plot of land they've dug themselves in. They're not moving forward very much, and the places that they're more moving forward is a place called Bakhmut, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a wood chipper. I mean, it's, it's just thousands are dying, you know, Russians, but also Ukrainians, to move the front line by meters a day. It's, it's, um, it's World War I style attritional warfare. So Ukraine has been saying... This is sort of the status quo. We can we can push in some places, but Russians are dug in. We need heavy armor. We need more artillery. We need uh, infantry fighting vehicles to move our infantry and to protect them. And as of last week, the West opened up the, the floodgates on armored vehicles. And I believe over a thousand were pledged just last Friday alone. And, and the U.S. has a way of once the door opens, they just keep Every month, they just add to the total. So that number is going to grow. And uh, today, this is we're recording this on Tuesday. Today, mm-hmm. Germany said that they would actually allow the export of Leopard tanks. They're going to actually chip in as well. And the United States also announced, probably at the urging of Germany, that they would give M2A1 Abrams tanks, which are... Um, uh, probably the best battle tanks in the world, logistically very difficult to use, maintain. So they may take a while to show up and be used effectively, but the leopards are going to be a big deal. So Ukraine is getting the pieces it says it needs to punch through those Russian lines. The uh, issue is going to take a few months. I mean, this is, doesn't happen instantaneously. So we're looking at two, three months before we can expect any kind of offensive. And then it's going to be raining, Phil, you know, <clears throat> When it yep. rains in, in Ukraine, everything bogs down because Captain Mudd takes over. This is going mm-hmm. back to World War II and probably 
the Napole uh, Napoleon era and beyond. Uh, Russia and that region in the in during rainy season is it's a bog. So that's my overview. Phil, what would you say differently or add to that? Not too much differently, I could, but I think partly we've been fooled by the U.S. military over the past 50, 60 years to think war could be quick. <laughs> you know, we we think of Desert Storm or even the the you know the original seizure of Baghdad after two thousand one, where we think. You know, uh, these things are over relatively soon, but actually, that's the U.S. is different. It has massive logistical capabilities, as Marcos um, has experienced you know, himself, and and so it, the U.S. experience. And and I think one of the problems, by the way, is too many people thought the Russian military was a version of the U.S. military when it's a completely different beast. What's going on here is more like a traditional state-to-state -state war. You have some real strong engagements, really bloody battles, and then you've got to rebuild. The Ukrainians are clearly be in a rebuilding phase now. They're trying to create more offensive units. Um, and you know, in the meantime, they seem to say, okay, if the Russians do want to do these um, massed wave attacks, we'll have to just sit there and, and kill them. I mean, it's most a horrible phase in the war. It's just, if you look at the Ukrainian claims on Russian dead, they've just skyrocketed in the... I think it's been 20,000 in, in barely a month is what they have said that the, the Russian, these are dead, the, the Ukrainians are claiming. Now, what I would say is going forward, the Ukrainians, if you see the way they've been fighting and it's been really quite thought out, they have a way of trying to cut the supply lines into the front. That's been the way they've, they've done it and, and, and the way that they've fought. And I think what they would want to do, therefore, is uh, continued to do that both east and west. Ideally, what they'd want to do is get close enough to the coast where they could isolate all supply going into the west area around you know, where the old Kherson front. There's still a lot of Russian troops there. Mm -hmm. And they can either, the Russians can bring them in just along the land corridor in the occupied area or through Crimea. If the Ukrainians can push forward, they don't have to push all the way down to the to the Black Sea, but if they can push forward 30 or so miles, then all of a sudden the ranged weapons could really shut a lot of that supply off uh, and put the Russian forces in the West in a lot of peril. I think that would be the ideal Ukrainian plan. But as Marco said, they now, it's really hard to go forward in this war. It's really, really hard because defensive firepower is very strong. I mean a few guys with a handheld can ruin your day if you're in a very expensive tank. The one advance that we've seen of the Ukrainian advance at Kharkiv happened because they hit an area where the Russians weren't. In that big advance when the Ukrainians liberated all that land south of Kharkiv, they made that advance into basically a vacuum. The Russians had been ripping all their troops out to send them to Kherson. They're not going to have that again. I don't think we're going to have this area where the Ukrainians are going to attack. So it's going to be more methodical, bloody, break a hole, go forward a bit, keep going forward, and then eventually get your ranged weapons into the point where the Russian supply system will break down. That's why everyone talks about attackums, because the attackums mean that they could start shutting off all Russian supply. And, and that is a very long range rocket that's fired from uh, either HIMARS or MLRS rocket artillery launchers. Right now, they have a range of about 80, 80 kilometers, I believe. 
And uh, these attackums would be closer to 300 and some kilometers. And, and so you're able to hit those Russian supply depots well behind enemy lines. That is a capability that Ukraine still doesn't have and, and desperately wants and would make a big difference. And I'm not sure why Biden still insists on not delivering those. But uh, there's not that many to begin with, and that could be part of the problem. And they're not made anymore. But um, it's that's one of the frustrating things. So, Phil, we're almost out of time. So um, one more question is, is uh, do you get any sense that the West is losing any of its resolve? Um, there's issues with ammunition shortages. And I know that the UK and the US are scouring the world trying to find both Soviet era ammunition for mm-hmm. Ukraine's old stuff and the newer stuff for, for new stuff. And they're trying to ramp up production. But there seems to be a real shortage. Could that prevent major advancements and uh, those delays? Could they actually, <laughs> do you see any, any hint that the world may start you know, getting tired of this? Actually, I see the opposite in Europe. And what's interesting is that you know, there's been a lot of focus on Berlin and the German government. What has changed in the last two months? You know what has happened? The Nordics, Central and Eastern European states, the, so this is you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, the Baltics, Poland. Uh, also, by the way, Holland um, the Dutch. And, Brit- and Britain have said Ukraine will, has to win this war. They've actually ramped up their rhetoric. They've ramped up their aid. And they are driving. Paul, I mean, the, basically, the Poles put a gun to Schultz's head today. We're sending these tanks. Are you going to stop us? You know, we'll, and, and Schultz back down. So if in many ways, you know, the, uh, one doesn't want to use Dick Cheney. And, but say, you know, old <laughs> Europe and new Europe. New Europe here, you know, what, what, what Cheney called New Europe back then, is actually driving um, a lot of this. So, in fact, what Europeans realize now is Russia can't win this war. If Russia wins this war, basically everything goes to, to pieces. Everything that they've been trying to build for since 1945 um, collapses. So my view is Europe's, in fact, harder um, on the whole than it was uh, two months ago. They really want the Russians to lose the war. Only it took a year to get there, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Finland's prime minister, I think it was last week, literally said there is no other option but for Ukraine to win this war. And I mean, I thought, oh, gosh, they are. I mean, this is serious. They're dug in. Um, but I appreciate the historical sweep that you're giving it. If you just want to, if you want to add anything to how important you think it is that Ukraine wins and Russia loses, I, since you're a historian, I'd love to hear it. It's important for everybody that Ukraine, I mean, if Russia for somehow wins this war and Putin's hold on power is gripped and it looks like the Russian strategy paid off then basically Europe ends up remilitarizing in a really dangerous and unfriendly, you know, a really dangerous way. You'll have huge spending. You'll have basically tripwires. It could be, it, it would change the complete complexion of Europe uh, if Putin is allowed to gain from this war and the people start making concessions to, to him. So I think that is, and by the way, for the United States, this can be, you know, I, I'm not a U.S. major interventionist. I think this is the the way it should be, help Ukraine, and then the U.S. in many ways can have uh, let Europe develop its own future. You know that the American ability 
the, to, Europe should be able to look after itself. You know, if it if with with Russia defeated, you know, Europe at that point would have the force to do it. Um, so it, it could be a good thing for the U.S. as well to have this kind of, of development. And of course, it's profoundly important for the Ukrainians that um, if the Ukrainians have sacrificed the way they have, and if they are think that everything we've done and we're abandoned, how devastating that would be. Thank you so much, Phil. Phillips. P. O'Brien. He's a professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He is author of How the War Was Won and Second Most Powerful Man in the World. You can find him on Twitter at Phillips P. O'Brien and at Substack at philipspobrien.substack.com. Phil, thanks again so much. This was incredible. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Marcos. Thanks, Carrie. Carrie, I'm still working on this sort of this partisan shift and, and Phil made this interesting comment that other than, you know, this period between Vietnam and the uh, and uh, now, I guess, which is what a historical period of maybe what, 30, 50. 40, 50 years. OK, Wait, 50 years, yeah, 50 years, I think. So. Yeah, that, that it's been the left that has been more interventionist and more apt to to play the role of global savior, I guess, is, is one way to put mm -hmm. it. And uh, that's fascinating, even considering that the Vietnam War really it was. It was uh, JFK and Linda, you know, LBJ that really started and ramped up that involvement there. So it might even be less time than, than that. And um, I wonder if this means sort of a recalibration of, of the left sort of attitudes towards the Pentagon and defense spending and, or, or if this is just a very unique moment in time and that the facts are just so overwhelmingly in favor of uh, the, you know, the, moral authority of supporting the war in Ukraine is just so overwhelming that that's, that's overriding broader trends against, you know, uh, well, liberal support of military spending. Two, two things. Uh, and I might only remember one of them <laughs> <laughs> due to lack of sleep. Um, so the first one is um, if, if Phil, if what Phil said comes true, which is uh, Western Europe or Europe in general, uh, I shouldn't just say Western, but Europe really becomes more empowered with, with just an assist from the U.S. rather than an intervention from the U.S., but more empowered to its own self-determination, to realizing that they need to come together um, in order to defeat an aggressor like Russia, because otherwise the entire political, the entire landscape is going to be changed and all of their right to self-determination will be threatened. If that really comes true, it's going to become a lot easier for the political left in the United States to, to get behind, you know, um, the United States more as an assist, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We're an assist to helping people continue the right to self-determination. That's just a much more, um, I think, morally easy, easy thing to get behind and, and to back and to see how um, our power, our, our, our military might can actually go to good use without us, you know, intervening just on America's behalf, right? Um, so yeah, oil companies are neocon dreams or any of the wrong reasons that we've wasted right. men and women and material in the last several right. decades. Yeah. So, so, so the second thing, which I kind of remember, is, you remember <laughs> I'd forgotten is, there was a number two. Yeah. But so it's, it's, it has to do with Biden and how, how well he's handled this. And I, you know, I, inter I, I listen to all these different podcasts all the time. I was listening to a, um, 
a Republican commentator, and I can't remember exactly who they were, but they, you know, they they've worked in Republican circles for a long time. They were a not crazy commentator because I don't listen to the crazy ones. You know, this is a like fairly reality based person, probably in conversation with like Bill Crystal or something, right? And and they were saying. You know, in terms of what Biden has accomplished on foreign policy, they, as as a Republican, were thrilled because he had managed to do more from a foreign policy standpoint than really any Republican in, you know, certainly since Reagan or maybe longer to unify, um, you know, Europe um, and uh, behind, you know, pro-democracy forces and to reinvigorate NATO. And I think it was James Carville, who, of course, is not a Republican commentator, is a very, you know, is a longtime Democrat um, who sometimes I agree with and sometimes I disagree with. But he said, what an amazing feat, you know. It, the, the way that he has managed to unite um, these pro-democracy forces and, and, and reinvigorate NATO without losing a single American life in the process mm-hmm. is unbelievably um, successful and unmatched by really any Republican, um, certainly for 50 years or more. So, you know, I mean, that that's that is a I, I think it's a foreign policy feat that Americans haven't fully realized yet and might not fully realize until hopefully Ukraine finally at some point wins this or just pushes, you know, Russia to eventually when. back off. Yeah. When, when right. When Ukraine um, wins. Right. Right. When, when Ukraine wins. Um, and, uh, and then it becomes clear what, it, what in a uh, sort of amazing uh, period this was in terms of American foreign policy um, I, I'm not sure Americans will fully appreciate it. You know, they they st- they tend to pay more attention when American lives are being lost. But th- this is really, um, you know, even by conservative standards, you know, and I don't mean I don't mean right wing standards like Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene, but by conservative standards, traditional conservative standards, a, a, a real incredible uh, piece of foreign policy work for President Biden. Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell hasn't criticize them <laughs> if you yeah. want in fact he's been pretty laudatory uh, about that and there's there's it's a whole different show there's a whole shift happening in europe towards the uh central european powers are are being aggressive while the traditional western european powers france and germany have sort of dragged their feet and they, they come along reluctantly and for a continent that that really needs leadership there's there's a huge void that has been left and some are looking to Poland, but Poland's government, as good as they've been on Ukraine, is has sort of autotra- autocratic tendencies or some undemocratic anti-press type of um, things that are a little disturbing. So there's no clear leader right now. And, and Germany is sort of doesn't want it. And a lot of it is because history. Right. You know, they're like every time we take leadership, people accuse us of being Nazis. So we're not going to do it. And that's frustrating in times like this. But but Germany just you know, does not want to relive that. Well, France well, does everything yeah. for France. Can I just say, yeah, it's Germany isn't just um, isn't just afraid of how it's perceived. I mean, there's actual guilt over the role it played. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I spent like a couple months in Germany in Berlin at one point uh, 20 years ago, no, 10 years ago, um, working on a, a you know, something working on a piece, basically a, a, a documentary. And it was 
you know, I think so many Americans just remember the power and the might of World War II in Germany and how sort of ruthless Hitler was. They don't haven't internalized what happened in the next coming generations of the German people where they just want they wanted to be supporters of peace. They did never wanted to be an aggressor again. They never wanted to be not just viewed that way, but see themselves. There's just incredible amount of guilt among the Germanic people about the, about what, you know, happened and what role they had taken um, in, you know, in, in world war two, especially in, and obviously in terms of the Holocaust. And so it, it, people just remember the, Germany, Americans kind of with the short sighted lens and knowing a few, you know, hot button points of history, like still see, you know, I think Germany as this incredible power. You don't because you've been tuned into this for a long time. But I lived I lived in Germany for years. Yeah, Right. Yeah. I I just don't think most Americans understand Mm -hmm. how much Germans internalized you know, um, this sort of peaceful mentality and they, they purposely demilitarized and, and left their, you know, their, their fate in the hands of the United States because they didn't want to have the power to do anything bad. So, but yeah, so all these are now coming to a head. So you're seeing that Japan was in the same boat and Japan now is starting to finally militarize in the face of a very aggressive China. So th- this war has is dramatically reshaping just the strategic posture of the entire country. It's going to be great business for the defense companies for the next decade or two, which makes me hurt a little bit because I'd rather that money be spent on, you know, feeding children. But that said, we, you know, Russia is just teaching us that the world maybe is a little not ideal as we wish it was. And maybe, maybe, unfortunately, we have to spend this kind of money. Uh, now, I'm going to argue that the Pentagon budget is way over bloated and that we don't need a $800 billion Pentagon budget. But that said, this reflexively anti-Pentagon, anti-military spending posture from the left really seems to be, you know, I think people are starting to realize why maybe this, this matters in a way that uh, frankly surprises me. So th- this shift not is just it's not just global strategic posturing, but it's also I think ideologically it's doing something, and so it's something I definitely want to keep exploring in in the next months and years because uh, something something interesting is taking place, and uh, and I think it's going to have consequences for for budgets and elections for years to come. So, Carrie, that's our show. Thank you so very much. Thanks to Walter for producing. Thanks to Paul and Dorothy and everybody that and Kara that make things happen behind the scenes. And thank you, our viewer and listener, for joining us. Appreciate you. Love you. And look forward to talking, visiting with you next week. And read Marcos and Mark Sumner on Ukraine at our site, dailycoast.com, because they have, bar none, done the best coverage in the U.S. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.